This last week, uh, Ricky and Kelly and I took a road trip. We went from here to Kansas City. We left on Wednesday morning. We were attending uh, the Leadership Institute where the topics of discussion this year were about the um, structure of the United Methodist Church and the ongoing conversation around that. While we were driving between here and the Church of the Resurrection, Ricky and I had lots of time to talk. I mean, we, Kelly was our chauffeur on the way there, and we just spent every moment uh, of our time, seven hours, visiting, getting to know each other better, talking about our hopes and dreams for the United Methodist Church as a whole, talking about our hopes and dreams for this local congregation of the United Methodist Church, sharing how we might collaborate between us and Pecan Mission throughout the year. And so as we began to uh, formulate some of these things, I wanted to make you aware of some things that you might expect to come out of that long journey and trip. So you should watch for some intentional discussions that Ricky and I will host around the effects of General Conference 2019 as it takes effect on January the 1st of 2020. We will also be talking about uh, additional legislation that we expect to be taken to the floor in May of 2020, which is our uh, regularly hosted general conference. And then also I want you to know that we are collaborating, Ricky and I, on an all-church Advent study. We hope that many of you will be a part of study through Sunday school, as well as a sermon series that will go along with the notion that it was not so silent a night long ago. So we're going to be doing the same text, Ricky and I. We'll be following the same themes, but I'm hoping that our sermons will be different between the two of us. In the meantime, we have our own September sermon series that we need to finish up today. In this series, we've been considering some of Jesus' most disturbing stories. And today we have one that forces us to consider the consequences that lead to heaven and hell. Because that is the setting of this story. Will you pray with us? Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence with great expectations. May the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Today the story, um, so today's story, like so many of the stories, come from these middle chapters of Luke. And in these middle chapters of Luke, it's almost like one story right after another. There is little known about the context that are assigned to them. And today's story is the same. We don't know if if there is a crowd around Jesus and the question at hand came from the crowd. We're not told that. We don't know if he is speaking to the disciples or to the crowd or to the religious elite. Luke just simply doesn't give us those particulars. Jesus simply tells us a story about two men. I want to read that story for you. It is in Luke, the 16th chapter, and it begins with verse 19 and goes through 31. Listen now for God's holy word. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen 
and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered in in sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. The rich man said, Then, Father, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into the place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This story paints a grim picture, a grim picture of one man who has no name, we only know him as a rich man, who is found himself in Hades with no escape. He can't even warn his family of the consequences of not following the law and the prophets so that they also won't find themselves in Hades. On the other hand, the story paints a grim picture about another man, a man who has a name, we learn, is Lazarus, whose earthly life was filled with pain and suffering. When he dies, he is scooped up by angels, and he stands next to Abraham. I found myself reading this this week and wondering if this is Jesus' hellfire and damnation sermon. I wondered that because it doesn't seem like the Jesus that I have come to know. Is this really a story about the condition of my soul or the soul of those who are living a privileged life? Hmm, maybe. But if there's one thing that we have learned as we've gone through this sermon series with these disturbing stories, it is that we must consider a deeper meaning in the story if we are truly to get to what Jesus is sharing with us. We cannot take the story simply at surface value. You see, the crowds of the first century, the people that might have been listening to Jesus tell this story would probably not identify with the rich man. 
However, they might not also uh, identify with Lazarus because many of them were able-bodied, they could get around, most had jobs, and very few of them found themselves begging at a rich man's gate. So I have to wonder, what is it that Jesus was trying to say to them? Abraham is quick to point out that the rich man's brothers have both Moses and the prophets to guide them. At the top of the 613 laws that every Jewish person tried their very best to live by every single day are two important laws. One is the love for God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you see, therein lies the problem. Because the rich man has no love for Lazarus because his love for self blinds him from him. Even in his torment, he objectifies Lazarus as the one who can be a messenger or one who can bring him and serve him in his discomforts. The fact that he knows his name, Lazarus, does not tell us that he knows Lazarus. In fact, he seems to not know him because he seems unaware of the deep wounds that Lazarus carries with him from the injustices in the world that they both lived in. Many of those injustices he brought on himself. And by the time the rich man is aware of Lazarus, this chasm between the two of them has grown so wide that there is no bridge to move between the two places of hell and heaven. No way to warn, go back and warn anybody in life on earth what lies ahead for them if they don't pay attention. There's no consolation for this rich man, and the story ends. Does it? Like the rich man's family, the readers of Luke's gospel, and you and I, have the benefit of the prophets and Moses, and we know what God expects of us. What does God require of us but to do justice? Love kindness and to walk humbly with our Lord, says Micah the prophet from the 8th century before Jesus was born. But we also have what was denied the rich man. You see, God has given us the one who is resurrected. The one who bridges that gap between heaven and earth. And I don't know about you, but there's something really comforting about the God that God who is so abundant in grace that this God did not stop with the story that Jesus tells about heaven and hell. But through Jesus, God builds this amazing eternal bridge from this world into the next and closes that gap between us and God. There are still plenty of walls and plenty of gates between rich and poor. But what this disturbing story seems to be illustrating is that there is little sacrifice that needs to take place to close that gap. That there is plenty 
to go around. But first, we have to recognize our neighbor. We have to truly see the Lazarus that are on both sides of that gate. There's a lot of reasons that we United Methodists go on mission trips. There's a lot of reasons that we serve our neighbors through our mobile food pantry or feed the hungry families throughout the summer through our partner Decatur Cares. A lot of those reasons are because we have a, a theology that says that because God gave to us, we also should share with others. But the most important thing that comes out of that work that we do is not about what we do for the other, but what God does for us in that work. In these acts of mercy and justice, God works on us. God changes the trajectory of our soul even as we learn to let our hearts break for our neighbors around us. We learn to love the one that sits on the other side of the gate. Now, friends, let me say this about this disturbing story. There is no way that I believe that Jesus is saying that the sins of the rich man is any worse than the sins of the poor man. I don't think Jesus is saying that. But I do think Jesus is calling our attention to the reality that the chasm between the rich and the poor are the things that divide us. And this this chasm is getting wider and wider every single day in our world around us. And the wider it gets, the more we face, the more we realize that we no longer have visibility to the person that is on the other side of the gate, whether we're rich or we're poor. What happens is that the people that we can no longer see fail to have a name. They no longer have faces. At some point, they lose a sense of reality to us, and we find it really easy to objectify them. They become an issue that we have to deal with, or a problem that we have to solve, rather than a child that God loves. So how do we build these bridges? How do we help close the gap of that chasm? We have to take time to really see one another really see the Lazarus in our lives. We have to learn their name. We have to learn their story. We have to pray for them. There is something amazing that God does when we pray for each other. God shapes our hearts and and helps us hear them in a new way. People around us, we see that they have a purpose in life, and pretty soon we find ourselves caring for those, for those that maybe even we don't like so much. There's one thing that I really appreciate about Adam Hamilton's preaching. He's the founding pastor of Church of the Resurrection where we spent the week. And that is that at the end of each one of his sermons, he gives people something tangible to do, some kind of tangible takeaway. And so he shared with us that one of the things he did early on in his ministry is that he realized he didn't know his neighbor. How many of us can say that? He didn't really know them. So he selected six houses around him in his neighborhood. He went to their door. He introduced himself. He got to know the names of every person in that household. 
And now when he walks the neighborhood, he prays for them by name. He has a little card at first till he gets to know them as he walks by their house. So that got me to thinking, what would happen? What would happen if each of us did that? So I did some math. I figure there's about 200 of us that worship on an average Sunday in these two services. And uh, that represents, if you figure um, 200 of us, three in a household, some will be less, some will be more, that that represents about 66 households in Decatur and the surrounding area. So what if each of these 66 households selected six other households to pray for? Maybe they're your neighbor. Maybe they're somebody you work with. Maybe they're somebody that you don't understand in the community. What if you got to know their name and you began to pray for them? That would represent, if each of those households, that would would represent 400 households. And if each of those represented three people, you do the math again and you come up with 1,200 people every single day being prayed for by name. And that doesn't even include if you ask your friend to join you in this exercise. So I began to wonder, what difference could we make in this community if 1,200 people are prayed for by name, by each of us? But more importantly, what would God do to us? How would God shape us and form us? As we lift these names daily, God breaks open our self-centeredness and replaces our self-centeredness with compassion, understanding, and acceptance, acceptance that we cannot even imagine for ourselves. The one who once was unknown to us will become the one who is known to us. And what breaks their heart will begin to break our heart. And then, then we can respond. We can respond with simple acts of kindness, or we could even respond with real substance. Friends, building bridges is hard work. And it won't be easy. But I promise you one thing, and that is God is faithful. God is faithful in those bridges that we build. God recognizes our hard work, and Christ will begin to heal our own hearts. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.